We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this, our 52nd episode, we welcome Anne Armbrecht. She's the author of a new book called The Business of Botanicals, exploring the healing promise of plant medicines and a global industry. We've all heard of the farm to table movement, but what about farm to supplement? What do we really know about the herbal tinctures and capsules we're taking in an effort to improve our health? It's a blind spot that Armbrecht's book shines a much needed light on. She takes readers on a long and winding journey into the Byzantine supply chains of industrial plant medicine. In addition to being a Harvard-educated anthropologist, Armbrecht is a filmmaker and the director of the Sustainable Herbs Program of the American Botanical Council. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, we join investigative journalist Carrie Gillum for a monthly segment we call Industrial Ag Watch. On this edition of Industrial Ag Watch, we check in with Carrie Gillum to see what stories are emerging within our industrialized food system. Carrie is the author of the 2017 book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Whitewash won the coveted Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists, as well as other literary awards. You can also go back and listen to a 2019 podcast we did with Carrie about that groundbreaking book. Her next book comes out this month, and it's called The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. Carrie currently works as a reporter and director of research for U.S. Right to Know. Her work frequently appears in The Guardian, and she has more than 30 years of experience covering food and agricultural policies and practices. She also serves on the Freedom of Information Task Force for the Society of Environmental Journalists. Here's our latest conversation with Carrie Gillum. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. A new study came out recently related to glyphosate and the gut microbiome. It was an animal study led by a group of European researchers. And what did they discover? The paper that they published was in in environmental health perspectives, I believe, and that was released last month. Um, Tell us a little bit more about that. You interviewed a couple of the researchers who were involved. Yeah, so this is this was 13 uh, researchers, and you're right from Europe. This was published in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives, and what they did it was a it was a toxicology study. Um, they they looked at the effects of glyphosate, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, um, the key ingredient in Roundup and many other hundreds of herbicides, one of the most widely used herbicides in the world, right? Glyphosate. They looked at the impact of glyphosate on the gut microbiome found in, the, in these rats, animal study. And what, what they were trying to do is essentially build on research and add to sort of a, a body of scientific inquiry that has been building over the last several years to really try to understand this chemical and how it does in, interact in the human body. Monsanto, which is the company that brought glyphosate to market in the 1970s and first patented it and really you know, created this explosion of use of glyphosate um, over the last 40 years has always maintained that the chemical is safe for people and pets and the way that it kills weeds or kills plants moving through this particular pathway, it's enzymatic pathway that affects amino acids in the plants, that 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 could never really occur or those negative impacts could never occur in humans. But what researchers have been finding over the last several years is that in the gut microbiome that exists within humans, there is a similar pathway and that the mechanistic action by which glyphosate kills weeds and plants can similarly create a negative impact in the, in the human gut. So what we're, what we're starting to see and what the scientists are starting to try to really alert us to is that if glyphosate, in fact, is impacting the human gut, where we have bacteria and fungi, and this bacteria and fungi are responsible for a lot of our immune functions and other important bodily processes, if you're disrupting that system with glyphosate, you could be contributing to disease and illness and, and other problems in, in the human body. So now this study certainly was not definitive and not the end-all be-all study. This was adding to um, and what they were finding is that, yes, this is interfering with the gut microbiome, 
Uh, it was creating oxidative stress in these animals. Oxidative stress is a sign of, of cancer, uh, can contribute to DNA damage. So as I said, there's, there's more research that's ongoing, but this was a very important piece of the puzzle as uh, scientists try to really understand what this chemical is doing to the human body. So what, what was the sort of new insight that this study provided? Because I know that it's, it's long been speculated that glyphosate, people sort of likened it to an antibiotic, that it disrupts the, the, the microbiome. Did this, did this confirm or sort of complicate that narrative? So they, they did say that they found that it did not act um, as an antibiotic, that it did not, in fact, kill off bacteria as an antibiotic would. But what they're saying is that they discovered for the first time that it, it interfered with this shikimate biochemical pathway that exists in gut bacteria. And they could see that in analysis of gut and blood biochemistry, and they could, they could see this impact on the animals. And as I said, mentioned, uh, they could see that this triggered a development of oxidative stress in these animals that were dosed with or, or fed this. Uh, they were feeding them actually a Roundup product called Roundup BioFlow. Um, I think it is, which is a glyphosate-based herbicide. So, you know, this was very worrisome to the scientists, obviously, and um, they're saying that they are conducting more research and they encourage others to to do more research to try to really understand these health implications, but that people should understand, you know, when you're having metabolic disturbances in your gut microbiome and you're seeing impacts in the blood and oxidative stress, it doesn't bode well for glyphosate exposure to people. You know, what's Monsanto Bayer saying? Are they going into full defense mode? Well, you know, so last year they actually, they actually paid about $40 million to settle some legal claims that were related to this. Um, You know, Monsanto, as I said, is long sort of advertised glyphosate herbicides as not affecting people, affecting the enzymes in plants, but not people. And uh, that particular lawsuit alleged, you know, false advertising, alleged that they were not being truthful. And, and they went ahead and settled that because, as I said, more and more evidence is showing that glyphosate does indeed have an effect uh, on humans. Now, they certainly are not accepting or admitting that glyphosate causes cancer or Roundup causes cancer or that it's harmful to human health. And they, and they still maintain and say very clearly that the EPA and regulators around the world you know, consider this to be a very safe product and, you know, that there is no evidence that it's harmful to humans and, you know, there should be no, no restrictions or concerns about using it. So that's their position, even though, of course, they also now are paying out about $11 billion to settle uh, cancer claims brought by Roundup users. Well, Carrie, thanks for keeping us informed. Thanks for asking me. I want to take this moment to introduce our new sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across all online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this. Farmers that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data shows farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Okay, you're standing in the supplement aisle. Maybe Whole Foods is having a sale. You stock up on turmeric pills, mushroom powders, and maybe a few tinctures. You feel like you're on the road to wellness. But have you ever stopped to think about the process behind how these products got there? Ann Arbrecht has, and then some. In this conversation, we dive deep into the often opaque global supply chains behind what has become a billion-dollar industry. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Ann Arbrecht. Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's begin like you do in the book. You're in a grocery store on the herbal supplement aisle. You're looking at all the white plastic and brown glass bottles. What are you feeling at that moment? Anxiety, confusion? Uh, I'm feeling both. (laughs) And overwhelmed, like knowing how do you find, how do I find something that is going to both do what I hope it will do, you know, help 
support whatever I'm hoping, whatever product I buy is going to help support. Um, but also that it didn't, if it's helping my wellness, that it's help, it's not creating damage along the way from the fields or forest, wherever it's grown on its journey to be a finished product. And this is a huge business, right? We're talking billions of dollars. How did this become such a, a massive industry? So the herb industry in the U.S. is different than the industry any anywhere else in the world, mostly, because in, in countries like China or Europe or India, the tradition of using plants as medicine re never really died out in Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine, but also the tradition of pharmacy in Europe. Plant medicine continued to be used alongside allopathic medicine. In the US, it really died out um, around in the 1930s and 40s for a variety of reasons that I won't go into now, but it died out. And so the knowledge of herbal medicine was really lost and the knowledge of how to source quality raw material to produce finished products. So that kind of died out. And then in the 1960s and 70s, there was this resurgence of using plants as medicine that came about as part of the back to the land movement. Um, it wasn't the only part of that resurgence. There was also a strong tradition in Mormon communities, as well as in, there were communities in New York, the raw drug industry that I don't go into in the book that's kind of outside my knowledge, as well as in rural areas of um, Appalachia or rural America that couldn't afford allopathic medicine. So there was this resurgence in the 60s and 70s, but it was not a big industry. It wasn't a billion dollar industry that it is today until the Dietary Supplement Act in 1996, I think, that really opened up the floodgates for botanical products and herbal products to be sold um, without getting FDA approval. So that really set the ground for the growth of this industry that also had to do with, you know, dissatisfaction with allopathic medicine, side effects of pharmace pharmaceuticals, people wanting to have medicines that they felt were healthier for themselves. Well, describe the supply chain of a typical herbal supplement sold on the global market sold in the U.S. How is it regulated? How transparent is that process? And how safe is it? So I want to answer that by talking a little bit about how I got into this, because that helps explain my perspective. I am an anthropologist, and I, when I returned from doing research in Nepal, I went to an herb conference led by Rosemary Gladstar, who kind of is known as the godmother of herbal medicine. And th from that, I did an apprenticeship in herbal medicine, and I really kind of felt like this was this philosophy for taking care of the earth that I hadn't found in other areas of my culture in the United States. I'd encountered that much more in Nepal. So I kind of stepped in with both feet into herbal medicine and the, really the values at the heart of what I saw, this way of being in relationship with the earth, treating it at, with respect often the values that are attributed to more indigenous ways of knowing, I really found that in herbal medicine. And as I learned more about it, I saw that it was more complex. Herbalists talked about the importance of intention and care in the products they made, but then they would recommend pro products to their clients that were bought and sold in a global supply chain. And so I wanted to know what does that intention look like in a global supply chain? So that made me interested in following herbs to the source. But I came with a pretty naive idea about what industry looks like. And in my mind, I live in central Vermont and I think sort of small scale, locally produced is somehow inherently better. And the process of following herbs through the supply chain, let me understand that it's much more complex than that. So that's kind of a long introduction to, to talk then about the industry that as it exists now, there are often, so there are wild collectors throughout the world in different regions of the world where wild collection is takes place. And that's like about a quarter of the herbs maybe in commerce are from wild areas. And then the other three quarters or so is cultivated 
And those would also be either on large farms around the world or often in smallholder communities. Um, those producers, they're called producers, then would bring those herbs to a collection area where the herbs are dried. And that begins the process of what's essentially cleaning up the herbs until they get to that finished product on the shelf. Often those first steps are in developing countries. And so quality control can be a challenge there. Then they'll be dried and either stored in those countries and then shipped often to Germany. 90% of plants that are destined for the UK and the US go through Germany because they have really well, a really well-established system for processing and sorting the herbs. So on that level, their herbs are processed, which is essentially chopping them from a larger size to a smaller size. And you want to keep it, keep the raw material in as large a size as possible for as long as possible because that retains the constituents in the plants. So the, each of these steps is kind of a different company. And so then it would go to another location for what's called finished processing. Um, so that could be powdered for a capsule or some kind of extraction that would then be created into a capsule or it could be into a tincture or some other finished product form. And then it's on, it reaches a grocery store shelf, but that label on the bottle often isn't the company that controls that whole process. Right. And in, in reading the book, you know, I was surprised by how opaque this process is and how much trouble you had to go to, to sort of wrap your head around it and understand the mechanics. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So when I started this project, I thought, oh, I'll follow herbs to the source and it should be pretty straightforward. The thing is most finished product companies have maybe 30 to a hundred different raw materials, different botanicals that they have to source. And those are being sourced from all around the world. And there are different parts of the plants that are being sourced. So it could be leaves or flowers or roots. And each of those needs to be handled in different ways. So whereas a company that's sourcing co coffee, that's pretty straightforward or cacao or something, it's just one supply chain that you follow to the source. This finished product company is juggling you know, up to 100 or 200 different botanicals from all around the world, from regions of the world that face different issues, you know, political unrest, impacts of climate change that they need to take into account. And so I needed to try and figure out, okay, how can I both understand the system, you know, both one, understand the system, and two, understand it in a way that tells an interesting story that people can follow. There's so much material that I didn't include in the book because there's every story has a, like 10 different stories that are, you know, different plants and different details that are involved. So I started this project, both the book project and my work with the Sustainable Herbs Program, because I wanted to create a movement in the botanical industry that was similar to the food movement. When I began this work in the so 2010 or so, you know, everybody was talking about where their food grew, but people weren't asking those same questions about herbal products or even, you know, Advil or, you know, nobody really thinks a lot about how that's manufactured and the impacts of that manufacturing on biodiversity loss or equity. And so I really wanted, but they are in the food, you know, conversations about food. And so I wanted to bring those questions to the botanical industry. Why do you think that's been overlooked? Do we think differently about plants as food and plants as medicine? So it's interesting. My husband and I produced a film, Newman, um, which was celebrating the values of traditional herbal medicine that I was talking about at the beginning. And when we showed that film to people who buy food from farmer's market, who would only feed their children organic food, did, never thought about these questions about like what kind of herb tea they're drinking you know, they, they wouldn't necessarily just drink certified organic herb tea, or they would never think you could buy a, a remedy at a farmer's market that could be nourishing. So I, I, I think, so that kind of woke me to the idea that there's this divide we have about medicine and food. And what drew me to herbal medicine was 
understanding how easy it is to make these simple remedies that can care for our families. You know, it's really easy to make a tincture of echinacea that's a lot more affordable than buying a one ounce bottle. But I think the other part of why it's different is there's a lot of, there's a lack of transparency in the botanical industry that has been there historically and it's starting to change. One of the main people I talk about in the book, Joseph Brinkman said when he started in this work, it was very difficult to know where the source of the botanicals for the company he was working for, traditional medicinals, but they really wanted to go to the source. And so they worked with their suppliers to say, we need to be able to talk to the collectors or the farmers. And initially that's difficult because the suppliers were afraid the end company would go around them and they'd lose the business. And so it's been a matter of building that trust so that they won't go around. You know, it's sort of the industry model is that there are these ingredient suppliers that establish those relationships with the producers on the ground. So some of that's trust, building that trust. And another, I think in the media, you know, the herb industry gets cast as either all good or all bad. There has not been a lot of room for discussion about what's working and what's not working, you know, what's good about the industry and what's not so good. And there's both, you know. Well, let's talk a little bit about safety. As you said earlier, the herbal supplement sort of industry is not regulated in the same way that say the, the drug industry is regulated. Um, how, how does that, what are the effects of that? And what, what did you see and what did you find in your research in terms of product safety? So it, so it is regulated there. It is under the Deshay, which is the regulation that just means it's not regulated the same as a drug. It's regulated the same as food. And so there are, it, it, companies have to adhere to, they are inspected by the FDA. They have to adhere to good manufacturing practices to ensure that the identity is correct, that the identity is what you know a company says it is, and and all of those things. So and there's this idea, you know, it's often criticized for not being regulated, but it is quite regulated in very specific ways. I think having said that, there's a huge range of the integrity of the companies involved. In this book, I chose to really focus on companies that have really high quality control standards. And so what that means is they have um, documents that they take samples from the producer companies and then they test those to make sure the identity is correct, that there's nothing in that product that they don't think is in there, like heavy metals, that it meets pesticide and residue um, guidelines and standards. So those companies have a really high quality control guidelines in place, but then there are others that don't necessarily adhere to those. So I think in botanical company, it's just like food, you know, there's a real difference in the quality between a tomato that you grow in your own garden and one that is harvested out of season from a huge farm and shipped across the world. And because we can discern, you know, we know we can taste that difference. We know there's a difference in quality and we've been educated to understand the different impacts on soil health and things like that. With botanicals, it's a lot more challenging because one, you can't often taste that difference, you know, between a tincture and a tincture or when it's a powdered extract, you, we don't know, how do we discern that? So we have to trust the companies more. And it's also there, What you know, this might be more involved than you wanna go, but with the dying out in the United States of that tradition of using botanicals as medicine, the, the sourcing chain got broken. And, and in that sourcing chain, there was real knowledge about quality. How do you tell what's high quality and what's not good quality of an herb, of a dried herb, of a you know extracted herb? So it was a process of learning and that process even since the time I've been doing this work, I feel like the industry is getting better. Not everyone, but there are leaders and companies who who really have a lot of integrity. Well, people go to the supplement aisle with such hope. They 
they believe if they just find the right product to buy and, and ingest one day, it could be cordyceps. Next day it could be holy basil. They believe their lives will be changed. Their brains will work better. They'll have more energy. They'll lose weight. They'll find inner peace, whatever it is. How does this aspirational consumerism diverge from your vision of what plant medicine should be or could be? I mean, I do that. I go to a product and I want it to have an effect. And yet I also think that for me, what has been most healing in my relationship with herbal medicine has been the process of first learning to make remedies myself or grow them and the relationship with the plant. And then also this whole journey of the following herbs through the supply chain. And so for this book and the work I'm doing, it's taken me places that I never imagined. And so it's helped me think of healing in much broader terms. One is a process, it's not a product. It's a process and it's the relationships with the plants and then the people I've connected through with through this work of following the plants. You, you make such a strong contrast between plant medicine and herbalism as practiced by someone like Rosemary Gladstar, who you mentioned earlier. And then on the other hand, the commodified industrialized form that you see on the shelves at the supplement section at Whole Foods. How do they differ in your mind sort of at their core? I mean, they, they seem, they don't seem like the same thing to me. So I think, and that's definitely how I started this project, that there was this big difference between the two. And a question that I was asking was, so many of us come to herbal medicine for connection, right? Connection with the earth, connection with the plants, the sense that we're doing the right thing. And I wondered, can we find that connection? And that's really what Rosemary Gladstar is embodying in her teaching and work with the plants. Can we find that connection in a global supply chain that in many ways is a source of our disconnection? And so what I came to take away, what how I understand this now, is that scale isn't so much the, the issue it's not just that small scale is the answer and large scale is not. It's whether that connection is can be maintained through the whole, from the source to the finished product. And so everyone I spoke with and interviewed talked about that the, the main difference is having relationships, that that is what really helps ensure that the quality is being maintained. And so that's a relationship it doesn't have to be the person in California has a direct relationship with a farmer in India, but that there has to be someone who has that relationship with a farmer in India. And then those relationships are maintained all the way through. To me, that is a way of beginning to help heal some of what we turn to herbal medicine to you know, that's what we look to from herbal medicine. It's a quality of attention in those relationships. It's that people are taking care of the plants. You know, attention is a kind of care, taking care that the plants are not harvested from the side of a dusty road, that they are stored in sacks that are clean, that that's a kind of attention and care that the ecosystem, the environment is cared for, that, that the collectors have enough, are making enough from doing the work that they don't live under a piece of tin, you know, that they can afford a, a decent living. So I feel like that, you know, that's really hard when we're, you know, in, in a grocery store in the US, how do you tell if that kind of care is all the way through the supply, you know, from source to finished product? We're gonna hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. During this segment of the Tractor Time podcast, we usually share a farmer spotlight, but today we have something a little different to share. At Barn to Door, we talk a lot about bringing your in-person customer relationships online. In our recent conversation with Jamal Miller, Director of Product Marketing at MailChimp, we asked him what tips he has for farmers wanting to engage their customers online and increase their sales through email marketing. Here's what he had to say. 
The first thing is defining what the end goal of your journey is that you want a customer to achieve. I think without that, it's hard to kind of think through what some of those touch points might be and how you might help to nudge a customer towards that end action. But a really common one is a new maybe prospect who's joined your email list but hasn't made a purchase yet, setting up a flow that kind of sends them a welcome email and maybe a series of, of messages that teaches them about your farm, gives them a little bit of background about you and, and kind of how you or your farm operates, introduces them to the various categories of offerings that you have, and ultimately is trying to get them to that first sale. But always starting with what is the end goal in mind that you're trying to achieve would be the one tip I would share. If you'd like to hear more advice from Jamal on how to engage your customers through email, please visit barntodoor.com slash tractor time. Thanks for listening. When you were doing your research, what were the differing levels of care that you found? I mean, it was, it was, it's a pretty broad spectrum of different practices. Talk a little bit more about that. So the biggest difference I found was, yeah, so it wasn't scale. It was between whether herbs could be traced to the source or whether they were bought and sold on the open market. And I visited some places, especially in India, where the herbs were bought and sold on the open market. And that you don't want those in, in something that's a herbal product because there's no oversight that this one narrow wholesale company we went to that I talk about in the book, the sacks were open. Um, so that meant both dust was getting in, fluctuating temperatures, but also other herbs could be at other dried roots and leaves could be mixed in. So you couldn't be sure that you were really getting what you came to be getting. Who knew what rodents were there at night? There, there's, and, and that lack of attention. So nobody's really paying attention because in that kind of setting, and that goes up to, you know, if it's a processing facility, then where they would be chopped, you know, how clean are the machines? You have no way of knowing because no one's being really accountable. Another factory that we went to and that I visited in Southern India, there were these big dried piles of dried roots and, and twigs in this warehouse and they were dusty and brown. And again, not something you would want in your finished product. And, and the trader who was showing us around when we asked if that was what he would sell to his customers, he said, well, if customers asked for better quality, he would give that to them. But if they didn't ask, this is what they would get. So that's kind of on the open market. So what you want is a company that can trace their product all the way to the source, as I said. And one way to ensure that is buying a certified product, certified organic, certified fair for life, certified fair wild, um, or there are also internal company standard certifications. What, you know, certifications aren't perfect, but what they do is ensure a paper trail all the way to the source, which is a way of paying attention because then people have to meet this, the requirements to fulfill that, to fill that paperwork out and stuff. Right. Well, I'm interested in hearing more about your personal story and how it intersects with plant medicine. You described this a little bit earlier, but you you were a Harvard-educated anthropologist, but something in herbal medicine really spoke to you. And I'm I'm curious to know more about that story and you know what your current sort of practice and relationship is with herbal medicine today. So as I said, I did my research in Nepal for my doctorate um, in anthropology, and I was in Eastern Nepal in a kind of a shamanic community, their Yamfu Rai. And the shamans and the priests in the village talked about seeing double. And what that meant is they could see the ancestors and living humans. And the healers in the village were contrasted. Those were the, the healers in the village were those who could see double. And that was contrasted with those who can't see double. And they said in one of the founding stories about the village, they talked about how not being able to see double makes you selfish. And I was really struck by that concept that seeing is connected to being selfish or not. And, and what I took that to mean is really not seeing the source of what sustains us makes us selfish. In that, in that case, it's the sort, the ancestors are the source. So that idea was really in my mind as I came to study herbal medicine and what drew me in immediately, one was being able to take care of my daughter, making these simple remedies from plants that I could grow. But it was also this 
idea that being in relationship with a plant, this living, something that we can't control, it's, it's an encounter with, you know, other, with a capital O, not just other as an object. And, and so those ideas of seeing really spoke to me in working with plants. And I talk about that some in the books sort of the spirit of the plants. But then as I began this journey following herbs through the supply chain, and I really wanted to make visible the people and places behind the finished product, that's also another way of seeing. You know, it's seeing what's invisible to us as consumers. And the market economy makes it hard for us to see. And so, and that makes us selfish, right? Because we don't see the impacts of our choices on those people and places. So I really wanted to to make that visible and tell those stories. So that was really what this book was about was telling the story of the botanical industry through the eyes of the different stakeholders involved and to see how does seeing in this way make a difference and how it translates into my work now is I'm the director of this program, the Sustainable Herbs Program, which is really to take the next step to act on, okay, what do I do now? What do I, I, I see these things about, you know, livelihood, you know, people, one of the biggest threats to the botanical industry is in part biodiversity loss and climate change, but it's also urban migration. You know, there just aren't people who want to collect wild plants all day and, and make pennies for their labor and people are moving to the cities. And so thinking a lot about in my work about how to inspire companies to source more responsibly in ways that better respect the ecosystems and the communities that are doing a lot of the work. So that's one part, which my work in terms of how I use plant medicine myself, I have a bigger garden this year. You know, I want to grow more of my own just because of the, I want to grow more of my own plants that I can then turn into tinctures and things like that because of the power of that relationship with the plants themselves. You know, I, I, I ultimately believe that's the most healing thing is not what we ingest in our bodies, but really digging our hands into the soil or, or getting to know the forests and meadows where we live. Right. And, and, you know, to, to be clear, the book is in part uh, about how to be a, a smarter, more informed consumer of, of these particular products, but it doesn't really stop there. It goes more into, I think, what you're alluding to just now, which is it's really not about what products to buy or what companies to follow, although that can be important as well, but it's really about sort of altering people's relationship with, with the planet, with what they're growing, with, with what they're consuming. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Oh, I, um, I do this kind of dance practice movement medicine and Yakov Darling was talking at a workshop once about how when he first started doing this dance, it came out of the work of Gabrielle Roth and he used to, people used to go to dance. People used to dance to go into trance. And now he feels like dance is a way to wake from the trance of being consumers to seeing that we're citizens of this planet. And that's really what I'm trying to talk about in this book, you know, to shift from how can this product heal me to how can my purchasing of this product be a way of supporting the companies that are trying to heal the earth. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about your work as director of the Sustainable Herbs Program of the American Botanical Council. You talked a little bit about that um, just a second ago, but I'm, I'm really interested in hearing more about the work that you're doing. When I had the idea of following herbs through the supply chain, I traveled to Eastern Europe to visit some Fairwild projects. And as I was there, I, I went to write this book, but as I was there, I realized telling the stories in video form would be a more powerful way of communicating with the audience I was really trying to reach. And so I came to back to the US and did a Kickstarter campaign to raise funds to then do the rest of the research. And then out of that, my husband and I produced this website, which is a sustainable herbs program, which is a multimedia website with to educate at initially the herb community and general consumers of herbal products around what it takes to source botanicals and kind of key issues. And we did that through a series of short videos that document the steps of the supply, you know, source to finished product, as well as diving into issues like the impacts of climate change and wild harvesting and regenerative farming practices, you know, how the herbs are grown, things like that. And, and I created that website. And then 
wondered, okay, now what's the next step? I wasn't interested in creating a new organization. And so out of that, Mark Blumenthal invited me to bring the program under the umbrella of the American Botanical Council. And so, and the American Botanical Council was started in that time of the herbal renaissance I mentioned before, in part to bring scientific rigor to the use of botanicals. Um, there was a lot of sort of sloppy, sloppiness around using, you know, saying nettles is good for X, Y, and Z without really looking at the tradition of knowledge, scientific knowledge. And so Mark really wanted to bring that in, which was a lot of translating of texts from Germany and things like that. But one program they have that I'm especially impressed with is the adulterate, the botanical adulterants program. So adulteration is a really big issue in the botanical industry and it can be intentional or unintentional where you know somebody claims a plant is something else, a higher value plant, they, they, they offer a lower value plant and say it's a higher value one to make more money, that's intentional or just because of carelessness. You know, plants get mistakenly sold when they're not really that plant. So the adulterants program is really kind of trying to raise the industry standard around issues of adulteration. And similarly, the Sustainable Herbs Program is under the American Botanical Council. We're really trying to raise the conversation and take it further around, okay, what does responsible sourcing really look like? What resources do companies need? And does the herb community need to really pressure companies and to help companies take further steps around the quality, healthy soils, making sure that biodiversity is being enhanced, not undermined, you know, questions like living income. And we do that in a variety of ways, continuing to produce videos on key topics. I've been organizing a series of webinars and we are getting new voices into conversations around the challenges of sourcing botanicals, the challenges of addressing livelihood, things like that, to, to bring those voices into the conversation and to help raise awareness and then come up with solutions. We created a toolkit, which is a collection of best practices. It's directed at companies who want to make changes but aren't sure where to begin. You know, again, there's a lot of resources for the food industry. Some of those issues transfer over to the botanical industry, but especially around sourcing, they don't. And so it was really trying to collect those resources for best practices in one location. You know, it, it seems to me that if, if we were to clean up the supply chain, make growing practices more sustainable, more regenerative, uh, focus on soil health, things like that, if we were to, you know, really support fair labor practices, things of that nature, we're still sort of divorced from the wisdom and tradition of plant medicine. And I'm curious what you think about how that piece can be introduced to the conversation to just sort of everyday folks who are going to the supplement aisle and because they heard about it on a podcast or they read about it in a magazine and they think it's going to be the answer to their issues. How do, how do people sort of incorporate uh, more understanding, more wisdom about how to use plants and herbs? So there are a lot of ways. I think the most immediate and simple, and I think the most powerful is buy a plant, put it in your window, you know, lemon balm or thyme or peppermint, these plants that are quite common, super easy to grow. I mean, I'm a not very, I'm a sort of distracted gardener. And so botanicals work really well for me because most of them are weeds and they don't require much attention, but they're, you know, you can make thyme tea or lemon balm tea and, and they nourish different parts of our body. So then you learn, but you learn by that direct relationship, I think is the most powerful. There's also so much online material. And of course, like products on a shelf, it can be hard to discern quality unless you know where to begin. Again, that's where something like American Botanical Council has a lot of resources on their website. On our earlier website, Newman, I created a resource guide that outlines, that provides free steps you know, around how to harvest simple remedies you can make and, and links to herbalists and places to learn more. You, you feature companies and different operations that are doing things differently. And I'm curious to hear more about some of the bright spots you found in your research, you know, people who are doing things 
sort of in a way that you think is um, aligns with with your values surrounding plant medicine? So as part of the book, we were able to, we were invited to join Sebastian Pohl and Ben Heron to visit with them when they met with suppliers in Southern India. And that was definitely the most important and powerful trip, I think, of the whole journey, because what they were letting us do was follow them when they met with their suppliers unedited, and we could film whatever we wanted to film. And in that trip, I really, I got an enormous amount of respect for the attention to detail that's required by people who are working, you know, they're working for a finished product company, the attention to detail that is required on their end in meeting with farmers on the ground. Also the cultural encounter, you know, ultimately in this case, it was people from the UK going to rural India to say, we need you to really take take care. And so it was the attention to detail, but also it's a cultural encounter around quality. You know, people coming from the US or the UK or Germany or wherever to rural areas and saying, we need you to change your practices because our quality control guidelines require more attention to this or that issue. So to do that in a way that's going to inspire someone to want to do that requires a quality of respect. And so I really saw that in how Ben and Sebastian interacted with farmers. What about horror stories? Did you see anything that was particularly disturbing to you? So we went to, in Southern India, I went back to India for six months when I was a Fulbright scholar. And at that time, visited a lot of Ayurvedic companies that don't really make it into the book because it was a whole other world. So there's some companies, Ayurveda companies that are GMP certified, which is what is needed to export the product. Ayurveda remedies that are made in the more traditional ways don't necessarily have to meet those requirements. And so we went into one of these factories and it was this long, it looked like out of Charles Dickinson, Dickens' novel, these big bats of bubbling, you know, products in Ayurveda, they need to be, say be boiled for a hundred days. You know, there are these strict guidelines for how it's manufactured and they would be in these open vats boiling for a hundred days with, you know, there would be these pipes going over the open vat with thick with grime. And I would imagine, you know, what rodents ran on those vats at night. And, and, and so that was one of the, the most horrific. And then outside that manufacturing area, there were just huge, this, this yard filled with huge logs that were needed to burn the fuel for producing these remedies. And, and then huge piles of dried roots and leaves that have been brought in, you know, dumped off on a truck from a truck that had come down from who knows where, you know, on an Indian road, which is a, quite a polluted country. So, so that was one of the more disturbing places. Um, but I actually heard worse stories from talking to people who have been involved in sourcing for a long time. You know, most of these traders would talk about how they would have a room with things that had been found in the sacks of herbs, like bolts, cigarette butts, things like that. And, and, and the, the point there, again, is you want someone who's really paying attention and following, you know, has strict quality control guidelines all the way through and is providing clean sacks to collectors. And, and but the other message for me, and Sebastian Pohl mentioned this early on, is that those of us who aren't directly connected with the manufacturing can be naive about what is really involved. And so for me, it was also like back to that idea, the point I made about seeing, it was about really learning to see and to not be naive and just trust, oh, when someone who said, oh, this is a good quality, we're paying attention, but also not be overly critical about an unrealistic and so that's really what the sustainable herbs program content that's directed at consumers. It's also trying to educate them so that we're not unrealistic in our expectations. Like if, if we want a product that's sourced on a global supply chain, you know, that's, there's a lot of hands involved. And so I think it also requires us kind of 
understanding that, not being so quick to judge, because if we're going to criticize so quickly, then a company's not going to want to be transparent. It feels like there has to be some kind of relationship between companies being willing to share some of the challenges they face and us as consumers being a little more trusting. Each side maybe needs to step forward a little bit more, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and a lot of your book is actually kind of about becoming an anti-consumer in a way. I mean, you know, we, we have no problem going to the farmer's market, loading up our bags with fruits and vegetables and, and going back at home and cooking them. But we're sort of maybe a little freaked out about making our own medicine. What would you say to people who were listening to this and maybe starting to get a little interested in making their own medicine, you know, at home? Uh, what does that look like? I mean, what are, what are some entry points for you? Um, where, where would you send these people? What advice would you give them? When we interviewed um, herbalist and MD, Tiarone Lodog for Newman, she talked about, how, you know, we've gotten so far away from the simple things. And she was, you know, saying making a tincture is easier than making pesto. You search online how to make echinacea tincture and then buy an echinacea seedling and plant it for two years and then harvest it and chop the roots pour vodka over it. And in six weeks, you have an echinacea tincture. But again, I would suggest people to look online. I think books, Rosemary Gladstar's books are fantastic. Actually, so scrap what I said before. The place, place, a really good place to start is to get Rosemary Gladstar has a book, The Family Herbalist. Yeah. And she goes, she picks like 10 or 20 really common plants that you can get to know and some simple ways to make remedies. I I think the main advice is what Joseph told, recommends, Joseph Brinkman recommends to people in the supply chain is to pick one plant. He was saying, pick one plant and follow it to the source and really understand the challenges for your company. But it also applies to learning about herbal medicine. Pick one plant. It could be, you know, if you're thinking about immune support, something that can support your immune system and really dig in, learn about it get a field guide and go find it, see how it grows. If people want to find out more about the work you're doing, where would you send them? The best place is the Sustainable Herbs Program website. And for information on my book, I have a website, annarmbrecht.com. Those are the two best places. Okay. Well, Anne, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been really great to speak with you. There you have it. Go buy the business of botanicals at acresusa.com. Use the coupon code MARCHPOD, that's M-A-R-C-H-P-O-D, for 10% off on all titles. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.